This is The Guardian. I'm Patrick Keneally, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story. Australians are in love with their cars, and in particular, SUVs. Despite their high running costs, questionable safety and impact on the environment, SUVs were the most popular models of cars bought by Australians last year. So what's behind our obsession with SUVs? And can the introduction of a fuel efficiency standard help combat their contribution to the climate crisis? Today, is there a way out of Australia's love affair with SUVs? It's Tuesday, the 16th of January. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. So, Elias, you've written about how the surge in SUV ownership means that Australians are spending an extra $13 billion a year on fuel. Are you surprised by the popularity of SUVs, given they cost so much more to run? Well, I'm not surprised by the facts backing up the trend. Elias Fasante is Guardian Australia's transport and urban affairs reporter. You know, as a driver of a small car, a Mazda 2, I've certainly noticed, you know, the surge in these huge vehicles around me on the streets. But I think there's a few things that have happened in Australia recently that explain what's happened. When you look at the, the, the role of the car in Australian culture and the way some of these cars are probably sold to drivers, you can start to understand why these types of vehicles are really popular. Every adventurer needs a trusted buddy. You know, part of the appeal in a lot of these cars is um, the ability to take them into the outback. You know, a lot of the ads that you'll see selling cars will show them being driven up mountains or through rivers. Let's head into the dawn together on a brand new adventure. Now is the time to take a new step forward. But in reality, I think most Australians, uh, you know, we're a highly urbanized country. We're probably driving these through cities stuck in traffic jams where, you know, a small hatchback would do just as well, even a sedan for a family. Yeah, it reminds me a bit of um, when Scott Morrison talked about electric vehicles and he said, It's not going to tow your trailer. It's not going to tow your boat. It's not going to get you out to your favourite camping spot with your family. Bill Shorten wants to end the weekend. But, you know, you're saying the reality is that most Australians live in cities. They probably do small commutes. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. I think for a lot of people buying these cars, it, it might not actually be what they need for their daily driving needs. Sure. So over the last 10 years, the number of SUVs sold has risen by about 70%. Josh Nicholas is a data journalist with Guardian Australia. SUVs have gone from about a quarter of new car sales to more than half, and they've increased every year. 
And our data editor, Nick Evershed, has been trying to turn this into a sound so we can understand how this is happening. Each note is a year, and the chart goes from 2012 to 2022. This is what the large increase in SUV sales sounds like. <laughs> so the noisy charts are great for accessibility because you can hear the data rather than having to see it. So just talk us through what cars are Australians buying now? So if you look at the list of the most popular cars 10 years ago, you would have seen the Toyota Corolla, the Holden Commodore, the Ford Falcon. There were a bunch of passenger cars on the list. If you look at it for last year, all of them are SUVs and utes, and the Ford Ranger was the number one car. I grew up in a, a large family for, you know, for the time. We had to move around in an old yellow Mitsubishi van to move all of us. But most of the families I knew had you know, a Ford Falcon or a Holden Commodore. What's happened to what we might call regular cars, things like sedans and station wagons? So it's basically the inverse of what's happened with SUVs. Ten years ago, passenger cars, so sedans, hatchbacks, things like that, were about half of new car sales. And they've dropped down to around 20%. One in five new cars are a passenger car. And you've also seen this with the, the kind of models that are available. You know, the Holden Commodore doesn't exist anymore. It's a strange situation. The size of cars have increased while the size of Australian families and households has actually shrunk. Josh, can you tell us what is the appeal of these really large vehicles? Yeah, so when you speak to people, there's a whole bunch of reasons they give you. You know, they sit higher so you can see better. They're easier to get into for some people. You can take them camping. You can take them off-road. There's just a bunch of reasons why people are selecting to buy them. And, and then also, you know, you start telling yourself other stories, like they're safer to be in if you get into a crash. And how much of that is perception versus reality? So for the people inside the car, the perception probably doesn't quite meet reality. Like the differences between smaller cars and larger cars, it doesn't make it as big of a difference as you may think. But for people outside the car, it does make a huge difference and not in a good way. For the people on the outside of the car, other cars, pedestrians, actually it's a whole lot worse. You know, SUVs, large cars, they're taller. So they're more likely to go over something when they crash into it. They're also heavier, so they hit things a lot harder. And then you, you still have this huge problem of backovers where, you know, someone standing behind the car, especially kids, they're harder to see. And that's a huge issue. And the road toll is going up. And, you know, part of the problem with the road toll at the moment is an overrepresentation of pedestrians and cyclists. Do any of the researchers have anything to say about that? Yeah, so researchers have found because of our preference for larger cars, the national road death toll is about 5% higher than it otherwise would be. And that, that research was, was done a couple of years ago, and they've told us that that number is probably even higher now, even accounting for changes in traffic conditions because of the pandemic. Wow. And Josh, what does the rise in the number of SUV and large utes mean for a climate crisis? So this is a really key thing because transport emissions is one of the biggest contributors to our total emissions. And unlike other countries, so the UK, Japan, they have seen reductions in emissions over the last 20 years, whereas ours have gone up. And a huge part of that is because of the kinds of cars that we are buying. And Josh, have you ever driven one of these large cars, kept behind the wheel of a dual cab <laughs> turbo diesel ute on the weekend? No, but like there is just an interesting other wrinkle of that. So like, Patrick, my first and only car I've ever owned was a Mazda hatchback. And if you look back, you know, 10, 15 years ago, most secondhand cars 
were these kinds of cars because they were the most of the cars being sold. Whereas now, if you look at the recent surveys for people who've bought secondhand cars in the last like five, 10 years, again, they're now being dominated by larger cars again. And these cars are going to be on the road for, for decades, I presume. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Elias, what's the role of car manufacturers in all of this? Uh, what's their responsibility in the promotion of big SUVs and large utes? I think if you look at ads for some of Australia's most popular cars, there was a a study by this climate advocacy group called Coms Declare, which looked at what manufacturers were spending across the board, print digital ads. And it, what it really found was that spending on advertising those larger cars to Australians dramatically outpaced what they spend selling smaller cars to Australians. I think even in 2022, they spent just under $200 million advertising SUVs and utes to Australians. And Elias, just explain to me some of the financial incentives that are pushing people into buying big cars. I think there's been a bit of finger pointing at a handful of tax perks from the federal government that incentivize or help businesses buy cars for business needs. But there's some suggestion that in reality, what they're actually doing is incentivizing maybe small business owners and others to buy larger vehicles because it's going to be financially more appealing so these are things cost. like the instant asset write-off? Yeah, so the instant asset write-off scheme has been kind of a big one. So this is basically where a small business can deduct the cost of, say, a car in one financial year as opposed to other assets where you might write it off and depreciate it over a number of years. And so businesses can do this for cars of all shapes and sizes. So businesses, and that includes sole traders, so things like tradies or software designers, have been able to use this scheme to to get a car for their business for a while now. But a few things changed in recent years that some people say helped this uptick in, in SUVs and larger cars. So what basically happened was the maximum amount that you could claim back increased quite substantially. And also there's a rule within that that says we'll give you back, I think it was something like $64,000 in the most recent financial year if you buy a car and you're going to use it for your business. But if you do pick a vehicle that can carry more than a ton, well, you can actually claim $150,000. That's a lot of money for a car. It sure is. Now, the rule is obviously meant to help businesses who, you know, need to tow things and carry a lot of stuff. And, and clearly some people genuinely need these types of vehicles. But the reality is, is that it's open to all businesses, regardless of what they actually need to carry and use the vehicle for. So whether you are a tradie or that software designer living in, in, in a Sydney or in a Melbourne, as long as you bought a car that can carry more than a ton, you still get that, that same financial incentive to lean towards that bigger vehicle over a smaller vehicle. And of course, many businesses, and particularly sole traders, will use their business car for personal trips too. And now, technically, they should declare the split between how much they used it for business and personal and, and only claim the proportion that they used it for the business as a tax deduction. But critics out there say there's not really much policing of that. And the sum effect of this is that these larger cars, which are technically classified as business vehicles, have almost been replacing the traditional family cars on our roads, in large part to that higher instant asset write-off amount in recent years. And of course, there, there are plenty of, of signals coming from 
the government's tax policy that, that do kind of nudge people towards getting a larger vehicle. But what's really hidden is the long-term running costs of these vehicles. And there's a huge, huge difference here. You know, they're, they're gas guzzlers and you're going to be spending a huge amount more on fuel running these cars on the same trips around an inner city than you would be with, with something smaller. Next, are SUVs getting in the way of reducing Australia's carbon emissions? Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. So, Elias, are we doing enough to cut our vehicle carbon emissions? Um, the short answer is probably no, especially when you look at uptake of electric vehicles, which a lot of people see as the most sensible way to really decarbonize road travel. Just over 8% of new vehicles sold in Australia at the end of 2023 were electric vehicles. Now, we're certainly seeing that rate increase quite dramatically. It was just on 2% in the middle of 2022. But Australia's still way behind, I guess, comparable countries around the world. And I think some people think that we really need to totally phase out internal combustion engine cars, which is, you know, the standard petrol consuming cars by 2035 to really keep any hope of reaching net zero emissions by 2050. Yeah, that's interesting because I saw that ACT has committed to ending the sale of petrol cars by 2035. Um, but the ACT in Australia is the only state or territory to do so. What's the federal government said about the future of petrol and diesel cars? So, yeah, I think really the big one is this fuel efficiency standard. And a, and a big part of a fuel efficiency standard is that it actually financially penalises car manufacturers more emitting, more polluting vehicles to a particular market. But Australia doesn't have such a scheme yet. And a lot of climate advocates are almost at their wit's end waiting for details of this policy. So this is something that the government promised they would deliver by the end of 2023. Exactly. And without that that signal to the market of what kind of cars we will accept and what will be incentivized and what will be financially penalized in Australia, I think some of those people are really worried about just how long we have to wait for it because they say that while we're waiting for it, manufacturers are still kind of diverting their most polluting cars to Australia. And we're still waiting for EVs to really to come here at a scale at which they can start to make a dent in terms of things like emissions. So for, at the moment, almost all models of electric vehicles throughout the past year tend to sell out as soon as they go on the market and there's huge waiting lists for them. So even if you want one, it's tough to get one. And a fuel efficiency standard would really help with the supply side of things of EVs in Australia. 
Does the market really care that much about what the Australian government says? Does it matter that much? You know, the decisions that we're that are made on the future of Australia's car fleet are going to be made in Wolfsburg in Germany or Nagoya in Japan. Um, why does it matter what the Australian government does here? Well, because if they set a rule that says these are the cars we will accept and, and if your car is more polluting, you'll be financially penalised for sending it here, that's actually enough of a nudge. And we see other markets where there are fuel efficiency standards in place Electric vehicles are much more numerous and accessible. So these are markets like the EU and um, the US, they've got fuel efficiency standards, I assume? Yeah, exactly. I mean, Australia really is quite an outlier among developed nations. I think Russia and Turkey are some of the only other ones of kind of significant size that don't have standards in place. And in terms of emissions, have these rules made any difference? Well, I think what's interesting is that a lot of those countries, while they have similar trends in terms of popularity of SUVs and larger cars, they're actually making progress when it comes to emissions. But Australia's kind of going in the other direction in terms of transport emissions, which have increased by 17% over the last two decades. So I think we are a bit of an outlier in that, in that way. So it does make sense that those standards would help it seems like a good idea to introduce some type of vehicle fuel efficiency standards. But what has the response from industry been like? Yeah, I guess it's kind of been mixed. So the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries largely supports a standard like this. But I guess it's kind of cautioning that you want to take your time, get it right, so you don't get a situation where there's issues with the supply and price of vehicles. Then slightly more expected, you know, some of those legacy car manufacturers who are making money from selling these petrol guzzlers to Australians, they've cautioned against rushing into a standard. Um, but I think by and large, there's, there's an acceptance that just like all other industries, this is one that we'll have to move towards decarbonising and that a standard really would mean cleaner cars and greater choice for consumers in Australia. And I think particularly at a time where the cost of living is increasing and, and fuel is a big cost, electric vehicles and, and incentivizing vehicles that use less petrol is, is a good path forward for consumers and for Australians. I think Volkswagen were in support of it. We've seen companies like Uber speak out in support of it. Mm. Now, while we wait for the government to get around to introducing a fuel efficiency standard, which I think Chris Bowen uh, was on uh, Catherine Murphy's politics podcast recently saying they were doing some detailed work on and they'd hopefully have it early this year, what could we be doing in the meantime to change Australia's love affair with these big vehicles? Well, I think certainly on the advertising front, they could be selling a different narrative. But I think an interesting idea I've heard is um, about introducing more small car-only parking spots. Which so you, would, you wrote about that recently, didn't you? Yeah, yeah and mm. some parking experts think that this could be a great way to incentivize to people to say, um, look, there's a really convenient space you could stop right next to the shop, but you need a small car. You can't get in there with a big car. And, and that can kind of send that message to people that when they're considering their next car, oh, maybe I should go for something smaller. It could actually cut how long it takes me to do the shopping. And you know, I think kind of worryingly for people who like that idea, uh, we've actually recently seen Standards Australia, which set the standard parking spot size in Australia. They've actually increased how big they say the standard spot should be in parking lots. And that's directly as a result of the uptick in, in SUVs and large cars. So uh, while we might be kind of going backwards in that regard, 
It's certainly an option that people like councils, businesses building car parks have to kind of signal to people um, that aside from the cost disadvantages of owning an SUV, there are actually benefits to owning a smaller car. So you've got to provide sticks and carrots for motorists to make the right decisions here. Exactly. That was Elias Vasante, Guardian Australia's transport and urban affairs reporter. We also heard from Josh Nicholas, data journalist with Guardian Australia. To read more of Elias's writing on this and to take a look at Josh's data, go to theguardian.com. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Alison Chan, Camilla Hannan and Miles Herbert. Sound design and mixing by Camilla Hannan. The executive producer of Full Story is Hannah Parks. I'm Patrick Keneally and we'll be back with another episode of Full Story tomorrow. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.